The views and opinions expressed by Governor Dean in this podcast are those of his own and do not purport to reflect the opinions, views, or official policies or positions of Dentons or Change Healthcare. Hello, everyone. Today is December 3rd, 2020, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, is Angela Ebat. Hi, Angela. Hi, Deanne. And I'm happy to introduce our new team member, Steve Brennan, who joined our team in October and covers state health policy in the Western region of the U.S. Hey, Steve. Hi, Deanne, and hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am very pleased to introduce our special guest today. Governor Howard Dean is a senior advisor in the public policy and regulation practice at Denton's. Governor Dean comes to Denton's after serving as chairman of the Democratic National Committee, where he created and implemented the 50-state strategy, encouraging the cultivation of candidates in every state at every level, rather than, so, rather than solely the traditionally Democratic-leaning states. Governor Dean began his life in politics in 1982 when he was elected to the Vermont State Legislature. He transitioned from a practicing position to a full-time career in public service when he became governor of Vermont in 1991, a position that he held for 12 years, which is the second longest serving in Vermont's history. Governor Dean was known for fiscal responsibility as well as his efforts in healthcare reform. The governor left office in Vermont to run for president in 2003, where he implemented innovative fundraising strategies such as the use of the internet and pioneered techniques used by both parties in the later 2008 election. Governor, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot to unpack in our post-election wrap-up session, and our main focus today is to do just that, to focus on the election results, both at the state and federal levels, and discuss the key healthcare policy implications for our business, our audience, and I'm sure there is an awful lot to talk about, so let's dive right in. To set the table, as we know by now, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris are already at work with their transition teams, and they are beginning to select their appointees for key administrative positions within their new administration. They've quickly assembled their COVID-19 task force, and between now and January 5th, uh, we await to hear more information on their appointees, as well as see who actually wins the two remaining Senate seats to be decided in the state of Georgia. And again, th- that runoff will be on January 5th. Just to unpack some of the uh, results of the, the presidential election, it's been widely said that Biden's coattails did not uh, follow as, as wide or as long as many pollsters had predicted. Um, the big blue wave that was supposed to sweep Congress uh, did not happen. And so I think with those slim majorities, bipartisanship will really be key here in terms of getting things done in Washington next year. First things first, addressing economic relief and vaccine distribution, um, as well as the rest of this congressional session, we're waiting to see what happens with a fourth COVID rescue package. Uh, Right now, Congress is debating their appropriations for the next fiscal year, and as well as what will or will not happen with the COVID bill, whether that happens before Congress adjourns this month or whether they pick that back up with the new Congress after the holidays. So, Governor Dean, with all of these moving parts and given the new administration's priorities, what do you expect uh, the Biden administration to really focus on first in the first quarter of 2021? I think it's going to be COVID all the time. Um, 
But COVID is, is what they do about COVID is also intermingled with what they're going to do about the economy. We have to have a major relief bill. And it's interesting that the Republicans have now decided that deficits do matter after the last four Republican re- uh, de- uh, presidents have run up the largest deficits, just staggering deficits in the multiple trillions of dollars. All of a sudden now deficits matter. So you're going to see McConnell quickly flip from supporting a lot of the relief items uh, that President Trump wanted to opposing them, which he's already doing. Nonetheless, the Republican senators are going to get so much heat for this that I think they're going to have to do something. And uh, as you know, in the last couple of days, a a group of bipartisan senators, both Republicans and Democrats, have uh, upped the ante, about roughly doubling the amount that Leader McConnell has proposed. Uh, And so in theory, if McConnell would allow this to happen, which he won't, uh, you would pass a a COVID relief bill uh, to supplement, uh, keep the economy going, basically, because when people start getting evicted from their houses, uh, it's going to be almost impossible to recover uh, anytime soon. And uh, you could pass that in a bipartisan way with uh, 30 or 40 Republican no votes. I don't think McConnell will let that happen. Wow, interesting, and it, yeah, it remains to be seen what will happen. But I, uh, I think that's a good theory. What are your thoughts about healthcare legislation, pandemic and/or otherwise, with either a Republican majority in the Senate or both houses with a Democratic majority? Obviously, though, either way, it'll be a pretty slim majority. Well, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, is a conservative Democrat, has indicated that he will not support getting rid of the filibuster or be the 50th vote, as he said. So it doesn't look like the Senate's going to get rid of the filibuster, which means it doesn't matter a lot uh, whether the uh, whether you have a, a majority or not. It's going to, whatever it happens, it's going to be one or two votes either way. Uh, now, it matters some because of judges, and that's going to be an enormous uh, problem, getting anybody confirmed uh, with a Republican Senate, even though it's very narrowly Republican. So um, I don't think that you're going to see big legislation. I don't think you're going to see the Medicare age roll down to uh, 60 or 55 or 50 or 40, which is what I was proposing earlier on the campaign trail. Um, I don't think you're going to see uh, any kind of uh, relief for uh, small businesses or individuals, because I think the Republicans haven't been very sympathetic to that. They say they are, but then they don't pass the bill. Um, So uh, I think it's going to be very tough. I think Biden's principal um, early victories are going to be by executive order. And one of the things that is interesting is courts, which, of course, are an arm of the Republican, become an arm of the Republican Party, have already approved giving huge uh, uh, distance to the ability that the executive order can be used for. Uh, and so it's going to be pretty hard for them to now all of a sudden say, well, you can't use executive orders for this. So I think you're going to see a very, very active executive orders, initially just undoing all the stuff that Trump did. And then you're going to see an activist president um, who's going to have to ignore the Congress and the Senate because there just aren't enough votes to pass anything. Uh, of any significance in a in a so tightly divided House and Senate. And the power of the pen indeed continues. 
So are there any bipartisan healthcare issues? I know some of the things that we've been talking about here at Change Healthcare is really the bipartisan aspect of health data interoperability. But beyond that, what are some um, some issues in your mind where you think that there is some common ground and there could be some agreement? Well, you know, the problem is the Republicans are basically against bipartisanship. They talk about it, but they never, ever do it because they're all about who gets the credit for what. There are some things people could agree on and people could work for. Uh, banning pre-existing conditions. The Republicans say they're for it, but they were in charge for four years and never did anything about it. Uh, though, but that's something everybody could agree on because it's vastly popular, even among all the people that voted for Donald Trump, which was a lot of people. Um, so there are many, many areas that you could find agreement on. The problem is the Republicans, since 1994, Newt Gingrich took over, the Republican uh, playbook has been demonize the daylights out of your opponents. They're always wrong and make them evil pretty hard to turn that around on a dime, even in a time of national crisis. So they're going to have to fundamentally change their governing philosophy in order to get anything done, even uh, if they're in a minority, unless the minority, if we had blown them away, that would have been different, but we didn't. And now it's a very closely divided government. Uh, I think it's going to be a uh, deadlocked government with the exception of the president's ability to A, appoint excellent people, which he's already started to do. Uh, who are really experienced, and B, um, to do executive orders. And foreign policy, of course, where the president has much more latitude than than he does domestically. Interesting. Or she does domestically, as we one day hope to see. Right, right. Very good point. Um, Last question for me, real quick. Any thoughts on uh, who will be running HHS? I don't know. I, all I've heard is the rumors. I think this is the tightest um, kept secret of uh, transition of, uh, you know, of any of the whatever it is, eight or ten administrations I've seen. Uh, it's extraordinary, really. Uh, there are rumors about uh, Governor Lujan Grisham from North, uh, North Dakota, uh, uh, New Mexico um, and some other you know, interesting rumors. But as far as I, I have no insight into this at all, and I don't think the people who are writing the newspaper stories do either. <laughs> Thank you for that. Steve, I'll turn <laughs> it over to you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, just to continue what uh, uh, the characterization that Dan shared in terms of the national election at the beginning of our discussion uh, that really resulted in uh, uh, little coattails uh, uh, and, and, a, and not a lot of change in terms of the Congress. Uh, that was m- very much the case across in the state legislative uh, and executive elections across the, the country. Uh, and there's a great quote that, I've, that I'll steal from Tim Story, who's the executive director of the National Conference of State Legislatures, who said it really just ultimately ended up as a hardening of the political sides in, in, in that only one uh, uh, legislature flipped uh, from one party to the other, and that was in New Hampshire, for, uh, the Democrats taking control there, and then one governor's mansion, which was in Montana, which has historically flip-flopped from term to term. So not really much change in terms of party control across the country. Uh, the, the real difference there was that majorities were increased, and if you looked at the results of the November election, there are now 30 states with Republican control of both chambers, in 18 states uh, with Democrats in control of both chambers. And among those states, you have 24 that have uh, the uh, Republicans in control of the trifecta, which is 
the House, Senate, and Governor's Mansion, with uh, Democrats controlling 15 states uh, in all three chambers. And uh, so there's really a really a, a kind of a deeper partisan divide uh, at the state level than there was before. Uh, certainly an interesting notion when we think about redistricting uh, coming in in the, in the in the coming years. Uh, so that's really a, a reflection of the of the electoral uh, changes. And then in terms of ballot initiatives, uh, sort of a typical number of ballot initiatives across the country. Uh, a couple that we were following, uh, California approved Proposition 24, uh, which is an extension or expansion of its uh, Consumer Privacy Act uh, that it passed in 2018 called the California Privacy Rights Act. Uh, and that exp- this law expands consumer privacy protections and forces on a lar- uh, protections on larger organizations. And also uh, does some clarifying language uh, in that law. And then also uh, in Oklahoma, uh, there was a ballot initiative to earmark funding from the tobacco settlement uh, to help support uh, the state's Medicaid expansion, which failed. So those were the two most noteworthy ballot in- initiatives. So in a nutshell, Really, uh, status quo, uh, more of the same coming in, in the next uh, cycle in terms of party control and leadership. Uh, and I'll hand it over to Angela. Thanks, Steve. Uh, appreciate that wrap up in states. Um, what I'd like to do is look uh, forward facing an upcoming session for states. Um, there are key things and top of mind for state legislators that we think were going to be uh, addressed. And the first um, and obvious one is the logistics of just convening uh, during the, you know, state legislators are, are having hybrid sessions where they're limiting the number of people and staff in chambers and uh, having virtual testimony. And states are also thinking about how, you know, they ratchet up or ratchet down levels of protection and protocols. Uh, based on surges in their state. So it should be interesting uh, session coming up. Um, also type of mine is budget for states. Many states are facing significant budget deficits and we'll have to make some hard cho- choices around taxes and program cuts for the upcoming fiscal year budget. Um, a third uh, item of uh, probably top of mind for state legislators is uh, um, public health, obviously, and state States will continue to address the public health infrastructure in response for COVID. And this is including um, continued contact tracing efforts and some vaccine distribution, as well as you know, tracking um, uh, in particularly the rural states and their uh, areas of their state. And then fourth, um, we will likely see um, telehealth being addressed. Um, while many states put in place temporary flexibilities to allow for telehealth act- access, um, we're likely to see um, legislators look at what flexibilities are made permanent and which ones are not. Um, and we're also already seeing this in Tennessee and Wisconsin and other states. And then finally, um, mental health and health equity. You know, as the pandemic increasingly shed light on significant challenges around mental health access needs and the disproportionate impact of COVID in communities of color, you know, states will likely seek implement policies to advance health equity and access um, to mental health care. And we're already seeing this in efforts uh, in New York and Oregon and other states. So I'd like to turn to to you, Governor Dean, and putting on your state hat. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about what to expect next from states in their next session. Um, you know, what should we expect just given the list of fiscal challenges of meeting um, with, with state legislators? I mean, it's going to be very tough, no matter what uh, state controls uh, is controlled by what party. Um, right now, many of these states have sur surpluses, but that is an accounting no, I wouldn't say gimmick because it's, it's, I don't think they've done that on purpose. But the way that state revenues are lagging indicators, and you're going to see, I think, enormous crises in all these states, regardless of who, run, who runs them. So I think, of course, there'll be the usual you know, posturing on which social issues or wedge issues and all that stuff. But I think the two big issues are going to be, one, COVID and how we recover, uh, and I think you've seen in the last six or eight weeks Republican governors appalled by things that their fellow governors like Christy Nome have done in South Dakota with the horrible consequences. And you're seeing a lot of Republican governors who are retrenching. Mike DeWine, one of the most conservative governors there is, sounds like a public health advocate when he's up there. Um, and there are a lot of Republicans who sort of said, okay, enough of this uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, theological approach to all this stuff. Let's just get it done. So there's going to be that, and there's enormous pressure from the public. Of course, unfortunately, people in places like South Dakota now have to put up with their own, and the governor of North Dakota is discovering this, his own rhetoric about mass is coming around to bite him, and now he's got religion now that he has no more ICU beds in the whole state. So, there's going to, that's, so public health is public health, and science is science, and facts are facts. And a lot of people are now realizing that you can't ideologically wish those away. And you're going to see the sort of the Republicans come back into the fold, especially now that they don't have Trump threatening them uh, if they actually claim to believe the facts as opposed to uh, rhetoric. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the deficits. The public school systems, which are often funded locally and depend on state revenues, um, roads, uh, and other core pieces of infrastructure, which are not partisan issues are going to put enormous pressure on every state budget in the country. Um, and most, all 49 out of the 50, mine being excluded, have balanced budget amendments. So the number of cuts they have to do, I'll just give you an example. On the ballot in Illinois was a proposal to raise the income tax for people who are up at the upper end of, uh, of the income scale. It it went down. There's $400 million they now have to cut out of the Illinois budget. I don't know how you do that. And it's going to come out ultimately, as it always does, it's going to come out of uh, the local people's hide. So the, this is, every governor, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, is going to have to face this. And a lot of them are suddenly going to get religion and decide that the facts matter, no matter which side of the aisle they're on. Yeah, you bring up a good point in terms of the public health response. And, um, you know, we, we saw governors definitely set up, step up at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you think that, um, you know, the public health response among states is going to be even more coordinated under a new administration? And I do, because so Biden yeah. has a very good uh, health care team. They're incredibly experienced. Most people have never heard of any of them. But I know some of them, and they are really good at what they do. One of the things I like about Biden's cabinet is, I would say he went for the workhorse, not the show horse. None of these people are big names. I mean, Tony Blinken's going to be a great Secretary of State. I would venture to say that 1% of the public knows who he is outside the Beltway. But that's fine. That's what you want if somebody's going to do the work. And 
Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that, and you've already, I've already seen it. Marcela Nunez is a, just a tremendous – I happen to know her because she uh, runs a lot of uh, health stuff at Yale, which is where I do a foreign policy course, and she's incredible. And there's going to be a lot of people like that. So I do think they're going to have a much more unified approach. You're not going to take the ability of governors away to run their states, but you can support governors – in terms of what they want to do once they're on the public health re- uh, reservation as opposed to off the reservation, which a lot of them have been. I think a lot of them are starting to come on already, and I think by the time Biden takes the oath of office, probably I, I would guess that 40 out of the 50 governors, regardless of party, are going to be in a mood to synchronize their efforts with the feds and would like more support from the feds, and they'll probably get it from Biden. Yeah, great. And and turning back a little bit to budget, um, obviously states are, are going to have to make some hard, hard choices, like you mentioned. But what's the betting context in terms of Medicaid in states? Um, you know, m- there's going to be a higher demand on Medicaid, increased enrollment, um, while at the same time they're facing these bu- budget issues. You know, h- how are they going to balance the two? Yeah, it's going to be an enormous problem. And, you know, one of the things I discovered 30 years ago when I was governor, or uh, when I started my gubernatorial te- term, was Medicaid brings money into the state. So 30 years ago, we did getting rid of pre-existing conditions, and we did universal health care for everybody under 18 by having a huge Medicaid expansion 30 years ago. Um, and I think a lot of states, the Republicans always want to cut. And that I understand that because people have to cut. I had to cut when I was governor because I went through two recessions. The problem is cutting things like Medicaid, which actually bring more money into the state that, you you know, there are excess revenues from elsewhere, is a bad idea. But I think a lot of the sort of fiscal conservatives will mindlessly cut. And that doesn't make any sense. If you're going to cut, cut things that hurt, Medicaid is one of them. But the difference is Medicaid is funded at least 50 percent by the federal government. In some of these states, it's a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to let my uh, colleague Steve jump in here with some questions, Steve. Thank you, Angela. Uh, Governor Dean, you, you, there was a little bit of discussion a bit ago about uh, public health. And if there's, if there's one thing that has been uh, light shown on it over the past year is the lack of investment in public health, uh, both at the national level, but also at, primarily at the state level. And, and state public health programs have been uh, under tremendous pressure. Do you see in the coming year, and obviously budgets uh, notwithstanding, uh, an effort to modernize state public health departments, programs, uh, and, and really, really be positioning so that the next pandemic is not nearly as devastating uh, as this one? Um, you know, the truth is that the public health um, efforts of the states, regardless of party, have been far better than the federal government's response. I think the major problem here is not a failure at the state level, it's a failure, failure at the federal government letter, le- level to have any leadership whatsoever. I mean, they, they, we would have been better if we hadn't had a federal government uh, since March of, of this year. Because they got in the way, they diverted tests that were needed, they played politics with where the tests came from. Uh, I mean, this has been chaotic craziness, literally, at the top. And I, I, look, is public health underinvested in? Yes, it is. Uh, But I think the states basically 
Except for the people who said, oh, don't worry, this isn't really a serious problem, like, you know, Arizona and Florida and places like that, South Dakota. But most people took it pretty seriously. And I think the public health, what we really need in a public health system is a public health system where the president of the United States can't undercut the CDC and, uh, you know, the NIH and the, all the health organizations. That's what we need, an FDA that isn't interfered with. And half the reason people in this country don't want to take the vaccine is because they don't believe the FDA anymore. From As a doctor, that's a tragedy. So I, I don't think that the state's public health efforts are woefully underfunded. I'm sure you can find states where that's true, but I think the biggest problem is complete lack of leadership. In fact, negative leadership from the federal level. I think most states could have got through this all with a little bit of beefing up and a lot of support from the federal government. Mm-hmm. So kind of piggybacking on that notion of roles. So we, we, we're anticipating that we will have vaccines available very soon and, and then the enormous task of, of uh, vaccinating the public and distributing those vaccines. What role do you see, or maybe put, you know, putting on your public health hat for a moment, what role do you see the feds and the state in terms of uh, leadership of that uh, vaccine distribution, that vaccination initiative, given the, the logistical challenges uh, of, of all of that? Well, I, you know, actually, I think that's being worked out. I mean, it, it's I heard a scheme today on NPR, which in the absence of a, a serious federal government is the best source of health care because they listen to Johns Hopkins, which is the best source of health care information. Um, you know, they're, they're gonna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna, which are the, likely to be the first ones that are emergency licensed. In fact, uh, I think uh, Pfizer's already been licensed in the UK as an emergency, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they all have different roles to play. Let's just assume, and we don't know this, because this is an emergency authorization, which means they're doing it without all the data in hand. But as a physician, I'd be comfortable, certainly, with Pfizer and AstraZeneca and maybe with Moderna as well, just based on what I'm reading uh, in the in the journals. Um, so Pfizer has a problem because their vaccine needs to be frozen to 94, uh, minus 94 centigrade. Um, <laughs> that's pretty cold. Um, and so it's not easily transportable. So what the plan is tentatively to use Pfizer in the urban areas and the highly populated areas because you don't have as much problem with cooling infrastructure to that level. And you have huge medical centers and other industrial facilities that are used to getting down to those kinds of temperature, which obviously requires very expensive uh, equipment that's very hard to run. And then have some of the other ones, uh, Moderna, uh, I think, is can be stored at room temperature, although I'm not positive about that, uh, be used in the more rural areas. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I don't think the public is going to discriminate between the differences, which may be subtle and may not be so subtle, of these three vaccines. They're just going to know it's a vaccine. And as long as they hopefully a reconstituted FDA with where people have confidence in it again, uh, is honest about it, um, I think we'll get through this. Thank you. Great. Well, we certainly have covered a lot of ground. And Governor Dean, thank you so much for being here today with our discussion. Appreciate your insights. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. 
and stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim. I hope you have a great rest of your day, a happy holiday season, and stay well. The views and opinions expressed by Governor Dean in this podcast are those of his own and do not purport to reflect the opinions, views, or official policies or positions of Dentons or Change Healthcare. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.